Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? So back on January 25th, 2021, I published an episode titled, It's a open bracket, crypto, closed bracket, Ponzi scheme. So it's a crypto Ponzi scheme. That's where I was paying homage to Stuff You Should Know's Chuck Bryant, who I have heard say it's a Ponzi scheme way back in the How Stuff Works days. And uh, in that episode, I talked about numerous issues within the crypto community that relate to Ponzi schemes. And today I thought we would do an update to talk about one specific one that really had an enormous impact last year. And then a little additional details, because even since 2021, there's been more examples of either outright Ponzi schemes in the crypto space or closely related issues that had enormous impact. So I'm not talking about every single one, but I'm talking about the really big ones. Now, first, we need to remind ourselves about what a Ponzi scheme actually is. Now, it takes its name 
from a guy named Charles Ponzi, who in the 1920s used a method to steal a whole lot of money, reportedly around $15 million in less than a year. Now, that's a lot of money right now. $15 million? I would not sneeze at $15 million. I would be chuffed to receive that. But holy cats, think about that in 1920s money. A ridiculous amount of cash. Well, what was he doing? Well, shtick was centered around international reply coupons, or IRCs. And essentially, an IRC is a voucher for postage stamps in another country. So you would go to the post office and you would buy IRCs if you wanted to write back to your family in the old country and then have them be able to respond without them having to buy stamps themselves. So instead, they would go to their post office, they would use the IRC coupon, and the coupon would cover the cost of stamps to send international mail back to you. You don't have to do this within the same country because then you could just use a self-addressed stamped envelope. But obviously, a U.S. stamp doesn't mean anything in a different country. Well, Ponzi's idea was to use IRCs and leverage the differences in postage costs in different countries. See, when you bought an IRC, you did so at whatever the local postage rate for a stamp was in your area. And even if the postage rate was higher, in another country, the IRC would still cover the stamp. So this example doesn't really hold because the rates would be flip-flopped, but here, here we go. If a stamp at the U.S. cost a nickel at the time, so five cents, but a stamp in Germany cost a dime or 10 cents in equivalent U.S. cash, what you could do is you could go to the U.S. post office, you would use a five-cent nickel to buy an IRC, you'd send that over to your papa in Germany, and your papa could use that same IRC to get a 10 cent stamp at the post office, even though you only had to pay five cents back in the United States. So Ponzi's idea was to try and leverage this. He wanted to buy IRCs in cheap countries and then redeem them in expensive ones and then sell the stamps at a profit. So it was like creating money out of nothing. He tried to convince a bank to back this idea, but the banks weren't convinced that the strategy would work. Or if it did work, it wouldn't really be scalable. You wouldn't be able to do this in a volume that would actually make you any significant amount of money. It turns out those banks were right. So instead, Ponzi goes and starts talking to friends and acquaintances, and he starts making promises that within three months he could double an initial investment and he secures a round of investment cash. And sure enough, some of these investors see impressive payouts from Ponzi later down the road. Except it turned out those payouts were not the result of this IRC scam he had in mind, or not even scam, his scheme. This IRC scheme wasn't the reason why Ponzi was paying out the dividends on those investments. Instead, Ponzi actually found the logistics of getting this scheme to work were way more complex than he anticipated. Like I said, the banks were right. So uh, I think at least in the beginning, he probably was determined to try and make it work. But in the meantime, what he did was he 
needed to to find a way to give a return on investment to these initial investors. So he took out a second round of investing. And with some of the money that folks were pouring into the scheme at this round of investment, he took that money and paid out some of his earlier investors. Well, the earlier investors are, are incredibly excited to see that they got such a rapid and considerable return. So a lot of them reinvested back into Ponzi's scheme. And before long, Ponzi shifts away from trying to make the IRC thing work. He just gives up on that. And instead, he just runs a scam where he takes the most recent round of investments to pay out returns to earlier investors and himself. Now, to be clear, Ponzi did not invent this idea. This was not a brand new concept. He was not the first to come up with a Ponzi scheme, but we call them Ponzi schemes because he went big time with this, uh, mostly out of Boston, Massachusetts. While previous examples of these schemes followed essentially the same thing that what Ponzi was doing, Ponzi's version propelled him to such wealth that before the whole thing came crashing down, he was pretty famous in the New England area. Newspapers would cover his business favorably, and that, of course, led to even more investments. So when a newspaper would say, hey, these investors are super happy because they got so much money back on their investment, more people were begging to give Ponzi their money. So it was able to perpetuate the scheme and make him even richer. But here's the thing. Even the best run Ponzi scheme will not last forever. Eventually, the incoming investments are not enough to cover all the previous investors, and you either have to pay out smaller and smaller dividends, which is going to upset your investors, or you got to take the money and run while you can. But while the scheme is booming, you can have yourself a swell time. Just, you know, you got to remember that at some point, the piper will demand to be paid and you'll likely also have some government agencies with some scary initials, and they'll be really, really interested in talking to you. Another way to describe the Ponzi scheme is the old saying, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Or sometimes it's borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. But you get the idea. You're not creating wealth. You're really just redistributing it. And it only works as long as you can keep finding more Peters so that you can keep paying all those Pauls and keep them at bay. As for Ponzi himself, well, several months after he rocketed to wealth, the investigators began to close in on him. The U.S. Postal Office denounced the underlying principle of his supposed business, which, remember, was not actually what he was doing. It was just what he said he was doing. But the U.S. Post Office said there's just no way he could be making that much money through IRCs because the volume he would have to trade in was greater than what the supply was. So literally there was no possible way for him to make his money through the way he was claiming because there weren't enough IRCs out there to make it happen. And local newspapers began to suspect that perhaps they had been hoodwinked. And so chagrined, they began to launch their own investigative efforts and well, way to try and save face, because if you talk someone up and then it turns out that they're a flim flam artist, that does not go well for your reputation, right? So these newspapers are like, we need to, if something is hinky here, we need to really look into it. There were a couple of points where it seemed like the mob was about to turn on Ponzi, that everyone was going to pull their money out, which would have sent the whole thing into a collapse. But 
a couple of times he was actually able to dissuade them. And some folks who were determined to withdraw their money once the investigations began would later reconsider because Ponzi seemed to be on the up and up. Like he was returning money to investors who were requesting it like millions of dollars early on. And so folks began to say, well, if he was actually a crook, he wouldn't be returning money. So he must be honest. That means I might actually stand to make a whole bunch of money from this guy. And so people who had initially thought I'm out ended up not just staying in, but some of them put even more money into the scheme. Now, ultimately, an audit by the U.S. government found that Ponzi's business was thoroughly corrupt and totally baseless. The investigation ultimately found there was around $61 worth of IRCs in the whole dang business. You are not going to be making millions of dollars in profit off of $61 of, of these coupons. And it proved that what Ponzi really was doing was just convincing more and more people to hand him money to pay off the earlier investors and to make himself rich. Ponzi ultimately would go to jail, though not before having a few more adventures through skipping bond and running off to different states before he was ultimately apprehended and sentenced. And after serving his sentence, he was deported to Italy. He had, he was an immigrant from Italy to the United States. He did not return to the U.S., but he did immigrate to Brazil and set up a business there until in 1949 he passed away. Now, there are a couple of scams that closely relate to a Ponzi scheme, but are slightly different. For example, a pyramid scheme. This is where you've got one person or, or a group of people at the very tip top of the pyramid. And then they recruit a layer of investors who pay money into the scheme. In return, these initial investors have to go out and recruit another layer of investors. And they keep a little bit of the money that those folks are contributing to the organization. And they pass the rest of the money up the pyramid. And then this new layer so now we're two layers down from the top. They have to go on and recruit yet another layer of investors and so on. So each group of investors needs to get more investors. And if you want to think of a simple one, let's say that each investor needs to get two other investors to pay into the, the system. And it expands rapidly, as you would imagine. And that's just if you only had to get two. And so meanwhile, the people at the top they're getting payouts with every successive layer that's added to this pyramid. Each person uh, along the top is getting a small amount per investment till you get to the tippy top where they're really making bank. But the people at the bottom are not making anything at all unless they are recruiting new people into the organization. So they're they're feeding into the pyramid. And like a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme will ultimately fall apart because at some level, the base of the pyramid is so large that there's no way to recruit more people to pay into the system. And the whole thing starts to fall apart. And really the only people who make any serious money are the ones near the top layers, like maybe the first couple of layers of the tippy top being the ones who make the most money out of the whole thing. Now related to that are multi-level marketing schemes. These aren't necessarily outright scams. Uh, they are not, necessarily illegal, but they also rely heavily on recruiting new members. And sometimes they rely more on the recruitment side than they do with whatever they're actually supposedly selling or marketing. 
And there are tons of these and they're known for selling all sorts of stuff. The classic example is cosmetics where you have people who get, you know, pay into the system in order to get access to cosmetic supplies to sell to people. But very quickly, they see that the real money isn't in selling the cosmetics, but recruiting other people to join in to sell these cosmetics. And once you really start stripping things away, it starts to look like the cosmetics are just an excuse for the organization to exist. The real money comes in looping in more and more people into the scheme until you've hit saturation. And then if the cosmetics can support that, if selling the cosmetics can keep the organization going, it's technically a legitimate organization. It's just that uh, it's probably not making the same amount of money it was when it was in the in recruitment phase. And it's still kind of questionable. And then we've got the crypto version, and these can take a lot of forms, but the basic sequence tends to be someone creates a new cryptocurrency, either on an existing blockchain or possibly through a new one, and they hold an internet uh, initial offering of coins, uh, IOC. Man, there's a lot of initialisms in this episode, and sometimes I stands for initial and sometimes it stands for international. It's initial in this case. So in return for an investment, the investor gets an initial offering of coins or digital tokens that are awarded to them. And they are newly minted, fresh, crispy crypto coins. We'll talk about where this can go wrong after we take this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts 
if you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, an initial offering of coins where you jump in on a a brand new blockchain offering, whether it's on a brand new blockchain itself or on an existing one, you want to be an initial investor. So you put some of your real money into the system and you are awarded some digital tokens, some crypto coins that have been minted specifically for this purpose to attract investors. And so your investment now is represented by these digital tokens. Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong with that, right? There are legit cryptocurrencies or as legit as you believe cryptocurrencies to be. That's kind of a sliding scale in public perception. But there are also schemers who would follow this exact same chain of events in order to rake in that investor money. They'd mint out cryptocurrencies that ultimately would end up being worthless once the whole scheme comes down and the ringleader runs off with the investment cash and everyone else is left with digital tokens that don't hold any value. And due to the fact that crypto allows for a certain amount of anonymity, it can be possible for the same scam artist to pull the scheme again at a later date with a new equally worthless crypto coin. Uh, It's also possible for a well-intentioned person or group to fall into this trap of a Ponzi scheme because they found themselves in a tough spot that they hoped was just a temporary situation. And they start practicing the whole Rob Peter to pay Paul approach just as a way to stay afloat while still hoping to make a legitimate recovery and not have to continue that practice. And maybe sometimes that works. Uh, Some folks might be able to use creative accounting to stay above water long enough to regain stability, but it definitely doesn't always work, right? Because there are lots of examples where this kind of thing will ultimately lead to a total collapse. And I want to add that one of the factors that I believe really helps fuel this is the combination of high enthusiasm and low knowledge or experience that the promise of a huge return, which is a typical red flag of any Ponzi scheme can really excite someone who has, you know, some money that they would like to invest and see that money increase. And the fact that cryptocurrency itself is a difficult thing to describe and explain, it's hard to teach someone how it works in a way that doesn't make them go cross-eyed because it is very complicated ultimately. Well, that 
that lack of information can end up helping if you're pulling a scam because people just know, oh, cryptocurrency, that's something that can, in some cases at least, lead to massive increase in value so I could get rich overnight by investing in this. And because they don't have a full understanding of it, they aren't aware of the potential risks. And that's what creates this perfect environment for running scams. Uh, I frequently say if there's a lack of information and an overabundance of enthusiasm, that is an enormous warning sign. And you should take a moment to really think things through before you jump in and participate. Doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to go bad, but it's just that conditions are perfect for that thing to kind of happen. So you need to take that step back and start asking questions and make sure that you understand uh, and can, you know, evaluate the answers before you start making decisions. All right. This finally brings us to talk about Terraform and UST and Luna. So Terraform Labs would be the company we'll be talking about. And the co-founders were Kwon Do-hyung, uh, although in the crypto community, he's known as Do-Kwon, and his business partner, Daniel Shen. Kwon had previously worked for some big tech companies in the U.S. before he moved from the United States back to his home country of South Korea. He went into business for himself. And then in 2018, he moved to Singapore and co-founded Terraform Labs in January of that year. So he located it in Singapore and you might wonder why. And a lot of these crypto companies, they will locate in places that have lax regulatory bodies uh, in an effort to be able to do business without having too much interference from government agencies. So Terraform Labs then introduces the Terra blockchain and ultimately would begin to mint two different cryptocurrencies, although not right out of the gate. These were actually uh, unveiled in different times. But one I want to talk about is Terra USD, which we usually just refer to as UST. That does get confusing because UST stands for Terra USD. And then the other cryptocurrency is Luna. All right. Even though it came out second, we're going to take UST first to explain what it is. Terraform introduced UST as an algorithmic stable coin. Now we need to break that down. A stable coin is a type of cryptocurrency that has its value connected or pegged, as they say in crypto, to some other asset. This is what ideally would keep this particular type of cryptocurrency stable. The value of the stable coin, at least theoretically, would only change if the value of the pegged asset also changed. So if you were to peg your cryptocurrency stablecoin to the U.S. dollar, which is a pretty common thing, then in theory, as the U.S. dollar's value rises, so would your stablecoin that's pegged to it. Or if the U.S. dollar value decreased, then the value of your stablecoin would decrease in kind. Typically, we're looking at a one-to-one -one relationship when we're talking about fiat currency. So one U.S. dollar and one UST would be equivalent in value, assuming that everything is going correctly. Stablecoins try to address an issue that non-backed cryptocurrencies often encounter, which is volatility. 
Now, you've probably heard me say way too many times that one of my big problems with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that their value can fluctuate so much that you are discouraged from using it as actual currency unless you're willing to encounter some potentially significant problems. For example, the value of some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin can change by significant amounts so quickly that when you start a transaction, you're exchanging a certain amount of value or purchasing power. But by the time the transaction is complete, that amount could have changed dramatically. So let me give you a very oversimplified example. This is one I've used before. So let's say you walk into a convenience store and you want to buy a candy bar and the candy bar is priced at one US dollar. So you pick up the candy bar, you go to the cash register, you hand over your hard earned US dollar, and in return, you get to take the candy bar and leave the store. But right at the moment that you're doing this exchange, let's say that the value of the dollar changes wildly. And now that $1 bill has $5 worth of purchasing power because now the, the value of the dollar has changed. So what you could have bought with $1 before has increased by five times now. Like technically that $1 is equivalent to the value of five candy bars, not just one. But now that means the candy bar you bought is way overpriced, right? Because it should now cost 20 cents because the presumably the candy bars value is independent of how much a dollar is worth. It's not like a candy bar is magically $1, no matter how much a dollar is valued. A candy bar has its own intrinsic value and that value, the price should in theory fluctuate with the value of the dollar. At least at some point, it's probably going to trail because these things are not instantaneous, but it will change. So it would mean that perhaps in the future, you would come to that same store and now you'd see all the candy bars are valued at 20 cents, not a dollar, uh, because the value of the dollar itself has changed. On the flip side, let's say that at the moment of purchase, the value of the dollar decreases by half, which means you got yourself a, a $1 candy bar, but at the purchasing equivalent of 50 cents before this change. Now the candy bar company or the convenience store is hurting because the dollar they collected isn't worth as much as it would have been pre-purchase. Now that's a very silly example, right? But that sort of stuff actually happens with cryptocurrencies because the transaction times can be long. With Bitcoin, you're talking about potentially 10 minutes and the fees that you pay with transactions are fairly high. And then you pair that with the currency's volatility, people end up being discouraged from actually using cryptocurrencies as currency because you, you could end up losing a huge amount of money just in the process as you're completing a transaction. However, stable coins, because theoretically they lack volatility, they can be more useful as digital currency. You could actually buy into a stable coin and be relatively sure that your money will be good wherever you spend it. And you don't have to worry about massive fluctuations in value. You can use it as a currency. Now, a lot of people use stable coins to move money into and out of non-backed cryptocurrencies, right? So instead of just immediately withdrawing Bitcoin into US dollars, you might convert Bitcoin into a stable coin first, then 
go through the conversion of the stablecoin into U.S. dollars if you want to liquefy or liquidate, I should say, your assets. Liquidity is very important for there to be confidence in the crypto market. But UST is not a backed stablecoin. It's an algorithmic stablecoin. That means UST relies on a set of rules. That's what an algorithm is. Ultimately, it's just a set of rules in order to keep the coin's value stable. And this involves stuff like keeping very careful control of the supply of stable coins and by extension, the supply of the related but non-stable cryptocurrencies. And that brings us to Luna. So unlike UST, which is on the, again, the Terra blockchain and also traded on other blockchains, Luna was not a stable coin. And UST, rather than being backed by a fiat currency or other commodity, was instead backed by Luna. And you might say, huh, so you've got one digital token and it's being used to help stabilize a different digital token, neither of which are connected to any real world commodity. And we could get into a discussion about how money in general is also a a step away from real world, but then I'm just going to descend into madness. So (laughs) we'll leave that for now. So Terraform Labs, the company, was using Luna to not just peg UST to another currency, but also to act as a proof of stake for the Terra blockchain. Proof of stake is how blockchains like Terra and now Ethereum allow for transaction verification. Members who want to participate put up a portion of their crypto holdings, their stake, in an effort to win the right to validate a block of transactions. And if they win that, they get a reward in the form of more digital tokens. So really, the more you have, the more you can earn on these proof-of-stake models. Luna was also used to pay transaction fees on the Terra blockchain, because while proof-of-stake doesn't require the massive compute power of the proof-of-work cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, there still are bills that have to be paid. And also, holding on to Luna gave Terra blockchain members the right to vote on proposals that would shape the network. So let's say you held some Luna and you wanted to trade that Luna out and withdraw your money from the Terra blockchain. First, you would trade the Luna for UST, and this would burn the Luna tokens, essentially destroying the specific tokens you held, and you would be paid an equivalent value in UST with uh, one UST being equated to $1 worth of Luna. That's important. We'll come back to that. And since UST was meant to be more or less the same value as a US dollar, this was like being paid out in US dollars, but it required another step. So it wasn't exactly the same because you would still have to convert your UST to US dollars at a crypto exchange and also pay some transaction fees along the way. This would set up the scenario that would allow for absolute disaster once things began to unravel. I'll explain more when we come back after this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. 
connect up to 10 devices, and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's say that you had Luna. Uh, you had, let's say, $85 worth of Luna. Well, because the UST was supposed to be equivalent to a U.S. dollar, even though it wasn't pegged to the U.S. dollar, you do this transaction and Luna ends up converting over into 85 USD, right? And uh, then they would burn Luna. That Luna token would get burned. And then you would uh, liquefy your UST holdings. Let's say you're, you want to pull that out. You want to make them into dollars. Well, in order to preserve the value of stable coins and keep them stable, the Terra blockchain would then mint more Luna. And this was meant to keep the UST stable, right? So even though we're talking about two different digital tokens, 
that are not backed by anything other than each other. <laughs> and it, as you are pulling out one, you have to mint more of the other to keep things stable. And then as you end up uh, uh, purchasing more UST, you might end up uh, having some different issues with the Luna supply as well. We'll get to that. So you could use your UST to buy Luma. And, you know, as I said, one UST was established as being worth $1 of Luna. However, because UST was not actually pegged to the US dollar, that meant that if UST was to slip in value and dip below a dollar, well, it gave you an opportunity. You could purchase UST with US dollars. And remember, at this point, the UST is worth less. Let's say it's worth 90 cents instead of a dollar. You could use US dollars to buy more UST because the US dollar is worth more than the UST is at this point. Then you could exchange the UST, each UST, for $1 worth of Luna. So if UST dropped to 90 cents, but you could still buy a whole bunch of UST and then use that to secure Luna, you could buy Luna at a 10% discount because that one UST equals $1 of Luna, that wouldn't change. So UST's drop in value would give you the chance to buy Luna at a discount and potentially make a whole lot of money. Now let's get to the Ponzi scheme side of this. The Terra blockchain launched in 2018, and for the first three years, things were pretty quiet. But in 2021, things would change. So one of the things that helped this was an initiative that Doquan had previously introduced as an incentive to attract new investors to the Terra network. And that was promising a 20% annual return on investment if you posted your UST holdings, the stablecoin holdings, against a lending platform called Anchor, which Doquan had also established. Anchor, this lending platform, was built also on top of the Terra blockchain. So you've got your stake, right? However much you decide to put on Anchor. And then on top of that, you make 20% every year. And you still have the original stake. So if you decide that you're done, you could just withdraw your stake. Plus you have all those returns you've made over the years. Uh, side note, in my experience, people never get tired of making money. So the thought was people will put up their stake and they'll just leave it there because it'll just continue to generate a 20% return year over year. So in five years, you've doubled your investment, right? Uh, cause you could always pull your stake and then you'd have twice as much money as when you put it in. But these kind of promises are exactly the red flags for stuff like Ponzi schemes. And typically those promise an incredible return on a relatively short time frame. And the anchor platform itself was a decentralized money market that again was built on top of the Terra blockchain. And its purpose was to loan out money to investors so that they could pour that money into, you know, another investment, perhaps right back into the system. So in other words, they were encouraging UST holders to post money to Anchor. Doquan would then apparently take that stake and loan it out to investors who would then pour the money into investments potentially right back into the Terraform blockchain. And meanwhile, Doquan was promising the initial anchor backers a 20% return on their investment. And people said, you know, this is sounding more and more like a Ponzi scheme. You're taking investor money to pay out other people. 
things started to go south in the spring of 2022. On May 7th, 2022, some investors who had staked UST on the Anchor platform began pulling their stakes to the tune of about $2 billion worth of UST. And a lot of folks began to liquidate their assets entirely, meaning they were pulling it off the Terra blockchain. They weren't just converting to UST, they were converting it to something else, whether it was another stablecoin or a, a fiat currency. And there were questions initially about whether this started as a purposeful attack on the Terra blockchain, that someone was specifically do, doing this to orchestrate the events that followed, because these were things that people had been warning about ever since the launch of UST. And it's, you know, pegging to the Luna uh, uh, cryptocurrency. People were saying this sets things up for disaster. And that's exactly what was happening. So it led people to say, oh, did someone look at the warnings and take that as an instruction booklet on how to do an attack? But further investigations suggested that perhaps this wasn't so much an attack. It may have just been that investors were getting concerned because in interest rates were on the rise around the globe and they wanted to start pulling their money. But whatever the cause, it all started a massive domino effect. So people started to cash out and the value of UST began to slip. And again, like when the value of UST goes down, it means technically you have the opportunity to purchase more Luna at a lower price. You're getting it for a discount. So the UST slipped to almost 90 cents and crypto traders pounced on it. They started to buy up UST in order to convert it into Luna. And Luna was trading at a very high value up to that point. Like in uh, April of 2022, it was almost $120 per Luna token. So if you could suddenly buy a $10,000 stake of Luna for $9,000, and then because Luna's value had exploded since early 2021, like in early 2021, it was trading at around a dollar. Well, now it's at $120 or close to it. So you started to think, wow, if it continues on that trajectory and I'm able to essentially buy $1,000 of it for free, if I'm, if I'm already sinking 10 grand into it, man, I'm going to get stinking rich and it's just going to take a year, right? If we're on the same trajectory. So you had all these, these crypto traders jumping on that opportunity. Well. It turns out the assumption that the value of the Luna token would hold was a really bad one because UST continued to slip and it became completely unpegged to the US dollar. And that led to a panic. Folks began to liquidate their UST holdings in an effort to save as much of their investment as they could. They were pulling out, you know, maybe they had made some money in the past and they're hoping like, all right, let's cut and run. This is about to go south. I want to get my money out before I, I take a bath on this. And some people got out with a considerable amount of money, but they were acting super early. And in the process, as people were liquidating their UST, it meant because of the nature of this UST to Luna relationship that the Terra blockchain had to mint more Luna to cover UST and stabilize it. Well, by minting more Luna, it meant that you were increasing the supply of the Luna cryptocurrency token and opportunists, meanwhile, had been grabbing up more and more Luna due to UST's value taking a hit. 
But now all the Luna they had scooped up was worth less than it had been because you had this new rush of supply, right? Supply and demand are the two things that determine stuff like value. And when the supply dramatically increases, the demand decreases, and then you start to see the value drop. So at this point, crypto exchanges began to jump in because the value of UST was plummeting and Luna was following suit. And so the crypto exchanges, in order to reduce their liability, began to delist UST and Luna uh, because both currencies were seen as being extremely unstable. But obviously, by delisting the cryptocurrency, that added to that instability. And, you know, it's really hard to keep value with a cryptocurrency if it turns out there's nowhere you can go to exchange it for something else. Because then it just exists on its own isolated little blockchain. It's trapped there and its utility is greatly reduced. And that, again, impacts value. So perfect storm situation. The crash of Luna's value sent a massive shockwave through the entire cryptocurrency community. So it's one of those big events that precipitated the collapse of several companies that were connected to the crypto world. Like there were crypto exchanges, there were crypto loaners. All sorts of companies that were related to the crypto space began to take a massive hit due to this collapse. Uh, some estimates put the amount of wealth lost in the wake of the crash at hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, this has prompted several massive government agencies in countries like South Korea and the United States to look into what happened. And they are very, very interested in speaking with Do Kwan. Kwan so far has evaded them. But the SEC, for example, believes that Do Kwan failed to inform investors of risks, that he made promises on returns that were unrealistic and unsustainable, and that he had outright lied about how Terraform worked. In fact, the SEC alleges that Do Kwan was engaged in securities fraud and that, quote, the Terraform ecosystem was neither decentralized nor finance. That's a sick burn. The quote continues. It was simply a fraud propped up by a so-called algorithmic stablecoin, the price of which was controlled by the defendants, not any code, end quote. So the SEC is saying there wasn't any algorithmic nature to the stablecoin at all. It was maintaining its value based upon just Terraform Labs saying it did. Now, Do Kwan's last known location was Serbia he apparently fled there after he left Singapore because Singapore police are now investigating uh, Terraform Labs as well. And Doquan had already picked up stakes and left. He fled to Dubai first and now is in Serbia, or at least his last known location was Serbia. My guess is he'll continue to try and keep a low profile and move around because he is a very much wanted man at this point in several countries. Now, before I wrap up, I should also mention the FTX debacle. I did an entire episode on FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, the co-founder, and arguably FTX isn't quite the same thing as a Ponzi scheme, but it does come down to a robbing Peter to pay Paul situation all the same. So the Cliff's Notes version of the FTX debacle goes something like this. Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, as the folks who used to be his friends and believers called him, co-founded a crypto investment company called Alameda Research. So. This company, essentially what it did was it would take investor money and it would put it into different crypto investments in an attempt to create a profit. So far, so good. It's not a guaranteed money maker, right? Because the crypto markets can be pretty fickle, 
but it's fairly straightforward. And uh, he located the business offshore because that helps avoid those imperial entanglements, as Obi-Wan would say. Uh, That's important to remember. One of the big anchor points for the crypto philosophy tends to be that crypto could be free from regulations uh, as opposed to the big established financial systems in various countries. Uh, However, this is something that's rapidly changing because governments around the world find themselves saying, wait, you lost how much investor money? So the regulatory agencies around the world have definitely been closing in on crypto. Anyway, a little later after founding Alameda Research, SBF co-founds another company called FTX, and this is a crypto exchange. So this is a business that exchanges currencies for other currencies, and it takes a little bit off the top to pay for its own operations. So an exchange is somewhere where you might swap your UST for Luna, for example, or vice versa, or UST for US dollars. You get the idea. These are the entities that make it possible to jump into different cryptocurrencies and participate in the crypto world. Now, FTX would actually grow to become the second largest crypto exchange in the world. And folks could keep their money in the exchange itself. They could treat it kind of like a bank. And when the dust would settle after FTX collapsed, it would appear as though SBF and his crew were a bit loosey-goosey with the money stored in customer FTX accounts. So just ahead of the collapse came this expose that included screenshots of spreadsheets that appeared to show that the FTX folks had been funneling money from customer accounts to Alameda Research to help cover investor returns there. So again, it looked like they were robbing Peter in the form of FTX customers to pay Paul, the Alameda Research investors. This expose set off a chain of events that would lead to the collapse of FTX. And FTX had its own native token, the FTT, and folks started to cash out their FTT investments because that expose showed that FTX probably didn't have enough FTT to cover all the money that customers had actually put into the exchange. So you're thinking, huh, they don't have as much money as people had invested into it. So I should pull my money out because I don't want to be left holding the bag. So people started to cash out, and that included Binance, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world, which coincidentally had also at one point offered to bail out FTX and then totes changed their mind. Uh, They ended up cashing out their considerable amount of FTT tokens in FTX, and this accelerated the collapse. So FTX didn't have all the money they needed to pay this out. Uh, The reveal about the Alameda research problem got published and everything came crashing down. So it wasn't exactly a Ponzi scheme, but there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram here. And it's stuff like Ponzi schemes that have really hurt the cryptocurrency industry in general. Like not every cryptocurrency is an outright scam, or at least it wasn't initially created to be a scam. But there are enough examples that have really damaged the whole industry, including banks that didn't start in the crypto world, but ended up getting tangled up in it. Uh, If you are interested in learning more about that, you should look up the bank Silvergate. This was a real estate bank or is a real estate bank in Southern California that about a decade ago, a little less than a decade ago, got involved into the cryptocurrency world and now is in real crisis mode because of things like the FTX collapse and the collapse of several other cryptocurrency companies that had been customers. Uh, It has even uh, 
gotten the attention of the U.S. government to look into Silvergate, which may or may not have done anything wrong. Silvergate might not have done a single thing wrong, but once you start getting the attention of the authorities, then customers start to get really nervous. And a lot of cryptocurrency companies have pulled their accounts with Silvergate. So this kind of activity, these Ponzi schemes and stuff can end up having a very large ripple effect beyond just the initial investors who lose their money. It could end up poisoning the well for everyone. There's the saying, one bad apple can spoil the bunch. In this case, those Ponzi schemes and related scams, that's the bad apple. And it could poison the entire blockchain community, even though blockchain on its own is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that it's prone to this largely due to the lack of regulation, which again means that potentially to solve this, the crypto world needs to change its stance and its thoughts about regulation and its role in finance. Uh, It goes flies in the face of the original like crypto anarchists who thought that deregulation was the way of the future. As it turns out, it does create the perfect opportunity for, for scam artists to steal lots of money, which hurts everyone. Okay. That's the update on it's a crypto Ponzi scheme. Hope you enjoyed this. If you have questions or maybe you've got, you know, an idea for a show I should do in the future. A couple different ways you can reach out to me. One is you can send me a message on Twitter. The handle for the show is Tech Stuff HSW, or you can download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download, it's free to use. You can navigate over to Tech Stuff with a little search bar. You'll see a little microphone icon on there. If you click on that, you can leave me a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. Let me know what you would like to hear, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 